Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And it's Saturday. Time to go into the vault. This episode originally aired on June 11th, 2019, and it was called Brain Soup and Liquid Brains. Uh, uh, I don't know what to say about it beyond that. It's about liquid brains, huh? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's there is kind of this, um, you know, yucky horror vibe to our sort of selling of the concept, certainly. But uh, it really gets into like what we can figure out via the liquefaction of brains um, regarding like the nature of intelligence in an organic brain. This one was one that uh, I was inspired to pick up after the 2019 World Science Festival in New York. Oh, that's uh, right. So, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, it's a pretty good one. Let's jump right in. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. Joe, what what kind of image enters your head when I say the words brain soup? Brain soup. That's a Green Day song, isn't it? Is it? I'm having trouble making soup. Is that it? it? I don't know. I'm not. I'm I'm not. I'm not. It's on Dookie, right? I only know like two (laughs) Green Green Day songs. I think I'm getting this wrong. Okay. (laughs) Uh, No, I also think of uh, there's a horrible scene in uh, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom where they're they're eating all kinds of weird foods that are parts of animals that you shouldn't eat. But why not? (laughs) But one of those parts is uh, they they eat a monkey brain. I don't think that's supposed to be soup. by the way, one of my favorite things on the internet is a total tangent is uh, is franchise specific wiki entries for inanimate objects. Really? Allow me to explain. So there is like an Indiana Jones wiki. That's just a website out mm-hmm. there. It's got entries on it for all the characters, minor characters in Indiana Jones movies, all the adventures he went on. But then also there are just entries because it's a wiki of just objects that appear in the Indiana Jones movies. <laughs> so this will include like individual pages for each course of the meal in Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. And one of them, the one that's got all the snakes in it, is called coiled Wrigley's. Wait, so wait, is it just it's just about a fictional food, or is it attempting to draw lines between these outrageous and you know like shock oriented uh, foods and in some actual traditions? Because that if they're not doing it, that would actually be kind of a fun thing to do to sort of take the the shock that they're that they're trying to to utilize in that scene and say, well, hold on, actually, here are some actual culinary traditions that are not really that shocking. Uh, no, it's not at all that informative okay. or mind-opening. Uh, just let me allow me to quote directly from the page for Coiled Wrigley's. Coiled Wrigley's, also known as Snake Surprise, was a dish served at the Guardian of Tradition dinner given at Pancot Palace in 1935 as the second course. It was live baby eels stuffed inside a moist boa constrictor. One of the guests at the dinner, a merchant, was very pleased when the dish was served. Another guest enjoyed the eels with great gusto. I have not seen that film in a very long time. I really don't know how it would hold up uh, for my yeah. modern view. Some elements certainly do not. <laughs> uh, you know, I should point out that, like, you know, you're talking about brain soup. Actual brain soup does exist. You have, you know, various pork brain soups, et cetera. And uh, even though I'm a, I'm a pescatarian these days, uh, I, I, I wouldn't order pork brain soup at a restaurant. Mm-hmm. I looked at some photos, and it looks perfectly delicious and not at all weird. Uh, so I just want to drive that home regarding uh, – the consumption of of brain uh, based soups uh, before I bring up uh, something that comes to my mind when I when I hear brain soup and, mm-hmm. and what came into my mind when I heard it recently I instantly think back to the um, the 1982 film it came from Hollywood oh yes so this was a this is a film it's it's I think you can watch most of it on YouTube these days but mm-hmm. uh, it was Dan Aykroyd John Candy Cheech and Chong Gilda Radner uh, that whole crew and it was sort of before mystery science theater there was this yeah. movie it was just a clip show of like bad sci-fi films and stuff uh with the hosts of the movie making jokes about them yeah and so a lot of trailer clips a lot of weird clips and there's a whole section that i that i loved as a kid uh, about brains you know mm-hmm. all these uh weird 50s and 60s brain monster films which which i think are probably expressing a certain amount of anxiety regarding like post-war advances in neuroscience and the mm-hmm. sort of ex- existential conundrums that are raised, you know, like, am I just a brain? What does it mean to be just a brain? Will a brain jump out of someone's
someone's head and attack me with its tentacles. <laughs> there was a lot of uh, revolutionary uh, neuroscience going on in the 1950s. And yeah, I, I can see exactly why people would be concerned about this kind of thing. Though some of them are just more like, I think there's one called like the brain from planet Arus or something that, hmm. yeah, just giant brains swarming at people. So the, I, I don't know exactly how much that plays on anxieties about neurology, but... I mean, I get that. What I really get a sense of it when I see clips from 1958's Fiend Without a Face, because that's where you have the the fabulous stop motion brains and kind of like spinal column tentacles. They're crawling people. Yeah, all over the furniture. (laughs) We just sprayed for brains last week. (laughs) Uh, But anyway, uh, this particular segment on brains was introduced by Dan Aykroyd, uh, and he's 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 in this this scene. It's like he's in a butcher shop, mm-hmm. and he's playing a maniacal. Perhaps he's supposed to be like a mad brain scientist, or a brain butcher, or like a a, a brain addict cannibal. It's it's kind of hard to say. It's not entirely clear, but it's it's silly and it's gross, and it's a. I I, I was tempted <laughs> to play a clip from it here, uh-huh. but it's just so over the top uh-huh. that I don't I don't think it would translate well to an audio only um, environment. You are. Correctly capturing here the strangeness of the premise for this sketch <laughs> in the movie. I don't just blithely throw around the phrase cocaine fuel, but <laughs> there there are some cases where you get you get a suspicion. Uh, but also in that scene, I remember Dan Aykroyd is doing a voice that sounds a lot like a Monty Python voice. It's, oh, he yeah, sounds yeah. like the leader of the knights who say knee. Yes, he does. It's that kind of like ridiculous cartoonish voice. Uh, yeah, the, the whole segment is, uh, is is fabulous. All right, but uh, all of this sort of these sort of visceral reactions to the idea of brain soup aside, we are not going to be talking about eating brains today on the show. Uh, we're going to uh, talk about the very real practice, the scientific practice of making brain soup to better understand the neural power of animal brains. Well, I am very intrigued already. Now, Robert, I know this the subject is not coming out of nowhere. This is inspired by something that you just saw when you were at the World Science Festival in New York City last week. That's right. Yeah, just got back. And uh, yeah, this is held every, uh, the last week of May every year. And as usual, I got to hear some of the world's leading scientists and thinkers discuss a number of exciting topics. And one of the talks I attended was Rethinking Thinking, How Intelligent Are Other Animals? Ah, this is always a great subject and something we've revisited uh, quite a few times on the podcast before. One time we talked with uh, Franz Duvall here on, on the podcast in an interview about his book. His book, I remember it had a kind of awkward title. It was some. It was something like, are we smart enough to know how smart animals are? Yes. <laughs> Doesn't really roll off the tongue, but it's actually a really good book. Uh, and and this has come up with reference to the intelligence of birds and, and qu- quite a few cases, actually. Yeah. And so this particular talk was loaded with interesting participants. But the, the participant that got me thinking about brain soup was Susanna Urkulana Uzel. A PhD, a biologist and neuroscientist at Vanderbilt University in Nashville, Tennessee, where she is associate professor in the Department of Psychology and Biological Sciences. And her research focuses on what different brains are made of. Now, Robert, I, I envy you getting to see a panel that involved her because I've actually watched a TED Talk that she did back from, I think it was 2013. Yes. She's, she's a fantastic public speaker. She, oh, she, she is. Yeah, she seems like a really good public science communicator. Yeah, like when I say you know, that you have a, a panel of, of leading scientists there on the stage, yeah, like don't, don't imagine something stuffy because you often have some just really wonderful science communicators up there uh, that uh, you know, are experts in their field but are also able to talk about that in a way uh, that people at you know various levels of expertise uh, can can jump in on, and that's certainly the case with Susanna Urkelano Ozel. Now, I do want to mention you're you're hearing this last name. Sometimes uh, you'll hear people pronounce it Herculano Hosel. Um, if you're trying to look it up, it's H E R C U L A N O dash H O U Z E L. Trying to to do the name justice here with our bungling mouths. So as she tells it, uh, Herculana Jose was working as a science educator um, in uh, Rio de Janeiro, Brazil. And uh, of, and she kept running into an, an old myth that I'm sure many of you have run into before as well. Now, this is not when we use the word myth to in the non-derogatory sense. Right. This is the just derogatory a found, sense. <laughs> Yeah, foundational story, maybe involving supernatural elements. Yeah, this is the derogatory myth. And that myth is we only use 10% of our brain. Ugh. 
And this has been used, really overused in sci-fi movies, especially over the years, as recently as 2014's Lucy and 2011's Limitless, um, which, uh, by the way, decided to double it to 20%, but, oh, still, good. but still stuck to this idea that there's only a small percentage of the human brain uh, that is available. Uh, and of course, all these these you know films, and pretty much any time you see this trouted out, it's it's with the idea like there's there are ways to open up the rest of the brain. There's like this dormant brain, yeah. uh, these dormant brain uh, portions that can be utilized if only you have the key. And the yeah. key, of course, is... Let it out of the cage. Right. Yeah. And it's supplied by, you know, some sort of mad science if you're in a fiction or if you're encountering it, say, in some sort of self-help scenario, then mm. they're going to sell you the key. Or, yeah, if you're encountering it in, uh, say, uh, nutritional supplement marketing. I mean, this is a big thing out there. Yeah, but uh, we, we say it's a myth because, and we'll break this down a little bit here, but but basically there's nothing to these numbers. No. We, we all all use 100% of our brains. Well, when you start uh, when you start to look at the claim, it becomes less and less clear what it even means. Does it mean we only use 10% of our brain at a time? Do we only use 10% of it ever in our whole lives? Like what even counts as quote using the brain mm-hmm. in the first place? Yeah, I feel like we've talked about um about neuroscience on the show enough, you know, and talking about various fMRI studies and like what parts of the brain are lighting up, what parts of the brain and what networks of the brain are associated with different thoughts and behaviors, uh, et cetera, that it's it's clear that like there is there is definitely a lot of stuff in play and that virtually and then really everything is in play. Yeah. Um, I well, guess I guess the confusion could be if you're looking at various images of fMRIs and you're thinking, oh, well, that looks about like 10 percent. That yeah, looks about like 10 percent. That's a really good point. Uh, when people talk about fMRI studies, sometimes they will uh, loosely and casually try to explain the findings of an fMRI study by saying, hey, when somebody was doing this task with their brain, you know, they were trying to tie a knot or they were, you know, whittling mm-hmm. a whittling a horse out of soap. Uh, when they're doing this task, this part of their brain lights up. That's the phrase, this lights up, which implies that the entire rest of the brain is dark until it just lights up as if it's like totally dormant. And this, that's not true. I mean, uh, brain imaging studies like, you know, PET scans and fMRI, they show relative activity. So right. they're, they're charting activity and seeing what areas uh, get get surges of activity relative to what they were doing at other times. Right. The, the areas that are not lit up are not lifeless. Right. But I mean, even back to this, I, I, I want to know again, what, what would it actually mean to use your whole brain or to use certain percentages of your brain? Uh, I, I was reading around about this and I found one pretty interesting thing. So the neuroscientist Gabrielle Ann Torre, I, I think she's at Boston University now. She wrote an interesting post uh, about this myth that I found on a website called Knowing Neurons. And in one section of her article, she discusses difficulties determining what it would actually mean to use, quote, 100% of your brain. Like there's no single way to measure what portion of the brain is being used at any given time. The default mode network, of course, is in operation throughout the brain pretty much all the time. Uh, but does that not count as the brain being used? I mean, even when you're at rest, the default mode network is whirring away all throughout the brain. Yeah, quite unfortunately in some cases. Oh, in, in some cases. I don't know if you'd want to be without your default no, mode well, network. No, I wouldn't want to give it up. But it, it is kind of thorn in my side at times. Oh, it certainly can be. But then interesting, I really like this part. So she tries to to take this claim seriously, like this 10% of the brain is being used claim. And uh, she's like, what would that actually mean? Well, she offers one interpretation of what it would mean to use 100% of your brain, and it would mean a grand mal seizure. Oh, so you know? it would be like limitless, except Bradley Cooper takes a magic pill and it just makes his brain like, like almost explode. Yeah, exactly. So to read from Torre's work, quote, seizures are defined by excessive and synchronous neural activity. If we wanted to use 100% of our brains to stimulate each of the brain's 100 billion neurons, this is funny, we mm-hmm. should come back to this in a second, to maximum capacity uh, firing would result in a likely fatal physical experience. To hope for synchronous excitatory activity across the cortex is, in many ways, synonymous to a grand mal seizure. Uh, this is the most severe type of seizure and leads to loss of consciousness and severe muscle contractions, not the unlocking of superhuman abilities. So I think obviously we don't just want universal synchronous patterns of excitation of every neuron in the cortex. That's stupid. That's not something to wish for. 
Right. It's like you don't want the brain working that hard universally. It's like you don't want your your you don't want your Xbox to be clearly just <laughs> just heating up and like yeah. the, the fan is about to explode. Like that, you know, something's wrong with it. Yeah, my CPU is at a hundred percent constantly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, and she also mentions the default mode network. You know, it's this diffuse interconnected set of activity nodes that show activation when the brain is otherwise at rest. You know, it shows the brain is pretty much never 90 percent dormant. There's activity throughout most of the brain most of the time. So where did this clearly false claim come from? Uh, the answer actually isn't known for sure, but I found one commonly cited early example is a quote falsely attributed to the American psychologist William James the author of a great classic text, The Varieties of Religious Experience, which is still interesting to read parts of today. Yeah, we've cited him a few different times on the show. Uh, yeah, but apparently James did write something generically kind of like this, but without a number cited uh, in, in a piece called The Energies of Men, where he wrote, quote, we are making use of only a small part of our possible mental and physical resources, which is a very different kind of statement. Right, yeah, he's not putting a fine number on it or saying like, you know, I mean that that statement alone is not not implying that the portions of the brain are inactive. Just that, per, you know, we're not taking full um, advantage of our our neurological potential. Perhaps. Yeah, and I I want to mention a bit more about that in a second. Uh, so uh, as to the origin of the phrase, the ten percent figure is also cited in the 1930s, and this has been pointed out by quite a few investigators by the author of an introduction to Dale Carnegie's classic self help book, How to Win Friends and influence people, which uh, possibly little known fact, Charles Manson's favorite book. Oh, really? Yeah. Huh. A, a classic of business leaders and serial killers alike. But this explains it a bit though, right? We have uh, here an introduction to a, a widely read uh, popular book. Yeah. And the author of the introduction says we only access, you know, we only use 10% of our brains. Mm -hmm. The vast amount of our mental potential is untapped. And I, I mentioned this a minute ago, but I, I, I just want to hammer home again. I feel like I've seen this nonsensical 10% fact invoked uh, by people selling some of the various like brain booster pills and supposed nootropic supplements. Uh, I, I would advise people to be cautious about that kind of stuff. And I'm not ruling out the possibility that there are some nutritional supplements or drugs that might in some cases have a small effect on mental performance. But if somebody's trying to sell you pills that will unlock the untapped godlike potential of the, you know, the pay to access part of your brain, the brain's oh, yeah. premium content, mm -hmm. as a general rule, be suspicious of this. I would I would advise in general don't trust them and don't give them your money. Because they're certainly tapping into something I think we all know to be true and we all certainly want to be true, the idea that there is room for improvement. Exactly. You know, that we can learn new things, that we can uh, we can take on new patterns, and all of these things are true. You don't need a phony number to back that up. Exactly right. I mean, I think a large part of the basis for this false fact, about 10%, lies not in how much of our brains we use as a, as a ratio, uh, but in the way that we use our brains. Uh, and the most salient example that comes to my mind is the psychologist Daniel Kahneman's really useful metaphors of system one versus system two thinking. You know, so system one, we've discussed on the podcast before, but System one is a suite of human brain functions that allow us to process information in a fast, easy, automatic, and approximate way. It's intuition. So, you know, think rules of thumb, stereotypes, intuitive and reactive thinking – eyeballing it. Mm -hmm. uh, meanwhile, system two is described as the slow, deliberate, effortful thinking, the kind of reasoning you use when you make a list of pros and cons, or you solve a math problem, or you carefully plan a route of movement somewhere, or you effortfully trace out the logic of an argument. We're all capable of both kinds of thinking, but we also rely on system one most of the time for most things, and that's because of efficiency. Like, you can't process all information in a slow, effortful way. You don't have time. And system one is not all bad. In some tasks, I think it might actually be superior. Like consider the way that overthinking some athletic tasks like shooting a basketball actually makes you worse at them. You know, like a lot of players find that they sink more baskets if they just try to relax and let the shot happen rather than focusing on uh, the distance and the angle and everything. And I think this actually even comes through in some more abstract tasks. Like sometimes I think people can be better writers if they if they just kind of enter a flow state and not sit and overthink over deliberatively about the sentences they're constructing. 
This is very interesting. Uh, hopefully this won't be too much of a tangent here, but um, but it's also, uh, we have to be careful about thinking about uh, like system one and system two being just complete like Jekyll and Hyde's. Right. Uh, because uh, actually at the World Science Festival, another uh, panel I attended had to do with risky behavior and risk taking, especially in extreme sports, uh, such as say free solo climbing. Yeah. Uh, and like free solo climbing is a great example because you have, uh, you have certain individuals who definitely display more of a system two approach, like they are methodical. They are, they're, not, they're not climbing it. Uh, climbing that, uh, that 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 sheer cliff uh, without the aid of ropes, you know, uh, without having practiced it many times, without having climbed it many times with mm. ropes, and thinking through several moves ahead, you right. see where you're going to go. On the other hand, you have individuals who do uh, have more of an impulsive uh, approach to risky behaviors, risk taking uh, activities. But like with the basketball, you can say, well, you perhaps you're engaging in system two to practice so that you can reach the point where you can engage with the uh, challenge with a system one mindset. I think that's exactly right. So, yeah, system one is not necessarily bad. It's Mm -hmm. not all bad. Sometimes it's bad. And I think we're all aware of cases where we have used fast, intuitive, reactive, likely inaccurate thinking when we know that we probably could have and should have stopped to think things out slowly and deliberately. Like you can probably immediately think of examples where you really wish you had switched over to system two thinking, but you made a fast, intuitive decision and you came to regret it. And I think it's this kind of frequently squandered mental potential that becomes the nugget of truth and the 10% factoid. We use our whole brains, but we don't always use our brains as effectively as we know we're capable of in every scenario because it's hard and because we're in a hurry. Does that make sense? Absolutely, yeah. We, we To live life, we have to engage both approaches to our decision-making. Yeah. All right, on that note, we're going to take a quick break. But when we come back, we're going to return to the idea of brain soup and to the work of Susanna Urkelana Ozell. All right, we're back. So we got sidetracked on the uh, the idea of whether or not people actually use more than 10% of their brains. Mm-hmm. We, we do in pretty much any way you interpret that. Uh, but w- that came up because it was the basis of a, a, a journey of research that the neuroscientist uh, Susanna Urkulana Ozell went on. And so it, let's pick back up with her story from the event you saw in New York City. All right. So she was talking about another number that she kept coming across, that she found curious, that she found suspicious. Mm-hmm. And that that is the number 100 billion. Oh, now this just came up a minute ago yes. when we were talking about uh, an approximation. Now, I, I don't want to indict the author that cited it no. because it's a reasonable approximation. But well, yeah, and we'll get into we'll get into that. Uh-huh. Uh, but but yeah, she kept running across the, this idea that the human brain contains 100 billion neurons and 10 times as many glial cells. Uh, but the thing is, unlike that 10% of the brain thing, this was not merely the domain of pop culture and science fiction. No, this figure freak was frequently cited by neuroscientists, by psychologists, but, and sometimes applied as a, as a comparison to the number of stars in the Milky Way. I imagine a number of you have heard this one before. What, 100 billion stars in the Milky Way? Yeah, so the idea being like, hey, you have 100, 100 billion neurons in your head. That's as many stars as there are in the Milky Way, which, I mean, on one level, I think that's a useful metaphor because you're basically making the statement that um, that that inner space is as complex and vast as we take outer space to be. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, when you start looking at those actual numbers, uh, there's some problems on both sides. Yeah. Because for starters, the 100 billion star estimate in the Milky Way is not a solid number. By some estimations, the Milky Way has the, the mass of 100 billion solar masses, but other estimates say 400 billion or even 700 billion solar masses is more accurate. Yeah, this is a fascinating question on its own. Uh, so it's difficult to know the number of stars in the Milky Way galaxy because obviously we can't just count them. You, right. know, you can't look up there and count them. Uh, the best we can do is estimate on the basis of the mass and luminosity luminosity of the galaxy as a whole. But this presents difficulties, too, because there are plenty of things in the galaxy other than stars, right? The vast majority of the mass of our galaxy is not even normal matter. It seems to be dark matter, which is still an unsolved mystery in astrophysics. And uh, dark matter, of course, is this hypothetical stuff that we detect by measuring its mass. In other words, the, the gravitational effect it has on stuff around it. But it doesn't appear to interact with electromagnetic radiation like 
light, making it unlike any other ordinary matter that we know of. So at this point, we don't know what that stuff is, and that's most of the mass out there. And then past that, we know that a lot of the ordinary matter in the galaxy is not just stars. Some of it is uh, like unincorporated debris, cosmic gas and dust, just hydrogen clouds out there. Of course, that's not the majority of the luminous matter, but it's enough to complicate the problem of estimating star counts. And then on top of that, you've got ice and comets and planets and black holes and a supermassive black hole at the center of the galaxy. And on top of that also, stars are of dramatically different masses. So you have to figure out the right average stellar mass to divide by. So it's it's almost like uh, this isn't a perfect metaphor, but I was trying to think of one. It's almost like catching an unknown species of fish and then weighing it and then trying to guess how many bones it has. You know, like you can't count them just from looking from the outside. Uh, and the bones aren't all the same size and weight. Uh, and there's a lot of other stuff in there too that's not bones. But So you, you can sort of estimate based on a number of likely assumptions, but you can't get an accurate count. Which leads us back to the human brain uh-huh. and this idea, this number that was thrown around, again, not, not in science fiction films, but in peer-reviewed papers, in, mm. uh, in, in, in textbooks as well. It was just out there in sort of the, 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 the scientific zeitgeist, the idea that there were 100 billion neurons in the human brain. And we didn't know where this number comes from. Right. And so uh, Susanna roccolano Hosel. Uh, she, she was wondering too. And so she, she started looking into it and she looked and looked and she found no pre-existing count, no scientific basis for the number at all. The number was just floating around in the scientific world. So the, the obvious solution is, well, somebody's got to, to, to look it up. Somebody's got to count these neurons. Uh-huh. And so she set out to do just that via a novel tool that she uh, developed in the lab in 2005, and that is turning brains into soup, the soupification of the, of, of, <laughs> of the animal brain. Question. Yes. Did she say what the soup tastes like? No. Uh, I believe she said that the soup looked like un- unfiltered apple juice and apparently turned some of the students off of apple juice, perhaps forever. It looks, I mean, I've seen it. It looks like murky swamp water. Yeah. So I, <laughs> I doubt that anybody tasted it because this is sort of like priceless research material. <laughs> but I, uh, I don't know. Then again, you wonder if somebody got curious at some point. I don't know. She's she's a she's a pretty good. Well, like I say, she's a wonderful communicator, and she has a wonderful sense of humor. Uh-huh. I imagine if somebody had tasted it even accidentally, uh, she would she would have mentioned it in one of the talks or or write ups or interviews that we looked at. You know what? I've, I've got a guess as to what it tastes like. I bet it tastes like chicken stock. Hmm. That's probably a good, probably a good a good guess. Well, and well, and perhaps from out high, but we'll get into that. Uh, <laughs> So uh, basically, yes. Yeah, so she she set out to make brains into soup. Uh, so basically, she came across previous lab ep- uh, efforts from the 1970s to turn the brain into soups to measure DNA concentrations. Uh-huh. Um, and one of the keys here is that soup is a homogeneous solution. Mm-hmm. So if you reduce uh, something like like the brain uh, to soup, then you uh, you have a better ability to like get a sample of that soup, do a count within that sample, and then apply that, uh, you know, to, to uh, the, the full volume of the soup. Uh-huh. So anyway, she said, well, well, I could use this method then uh, to figure out uh, how many neurons are in the brain, you know, liquefy cell membranes, leave the nuclei intact, mm. allowing them, uh, allowing everyone to, to, you know, to count the remaining nuclei in a small sample and then multiply the number by the overall volume to get the whole brain total of neurons. This is great. You can't do this with a galaxy, can you? No. Right? Like you can't just look at one section of a galaxy and say, okay, now multiply that by the total area of the galaxy because galaxies are not homogenous. Well, are, you, you would have to turn it to soup first, which you, you cannot do. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, or I mean, not on our scale anyway. You would have to have you know, godlike powers, and then you would destroy the universe. Maybe that's how the world ends. That's the shrewd Ragnarok scenario: <laughs> is uh, the god or gods ask the question, "How many planets? How many stars is it, are kicking around this thing?" Right. Well, let's turn it to soup and find out. Exactly. Loki says, "Thor, you can't count the number of stars in the sky." And he's like, "Watch me." Well, this this is exactly the kind of gamble that uh, that ancient gods would get into. You know. Um, just a mere bet and everything for mortals is at stake, right? <laughs> uh, 
But, but anyway, uh, Urkelano is not interested in that. She's interested in the brain. So the main challenge with uh, souping the brain was souping it just enough to retain the cell nuclei, but without breaking any of that down. Initial souping experiments via essentially a detergent went too far and attempts to flash freeze them with liquid, nit- liquid nitrogen and then blend them. Well, that just caused a cracked mess. And she says there were like frozen pieces of brain all over the place. Ugh. I think if anyone was going to taste brain soup, that was probably going to be when it would have uh, occurred. Uh, but anyway, then she found a solution, fixing the brain tissue with formaldehyde before di- dissolving it. And the result, she says, uh, again, looks like unfiltered apple juice and allows this kind of count to take place. Right. So you can pull out a small sample. You know what the volume of that is compared mm-hmm. to the entire volume of the sample. And then you count the number of neuron nuclei in the small sample and then multiply that by the total volume. Exactly. Okay. Uh, So I I think I mentioned earlier there's a TED Talk she did in 2013 where she shows off – anyway, in the middle of this this TED Talk, she shows off a vial of this brain soup on the stage. It's a little glass jar of mouse brain soup or it might be plastic. I don't know. It's a jar of mouse brain soup. It looks like murky swamp water. It's kind of sort of like a off beige kind of color. One of the best things about this particular talk though is that when she shows off the jar, she doesn't go and pick it up from a table or demonstration Mm -hmm. stand or something. Thing. She's just got it tucked into the back of her belt like a gun. <laughs> she just pulls it out. And then when she's done showing it off, she just slips it right back in under the belt. I mean, I guess it must have been there all day. Uh, well, you know, one of the things that she pointed out in the talk is that some, when she started doing these experiments, some uh, people objected. They were like, what are you doing to these precious brains? Uh-huh. As if she were wasting brains, as if she were essentially the Dan Aykroyd character from It Came From Hollywood, just, you know, massacring brain material. Uh, but she pointed out that, you know, aside from it being highly useful, mm-hmm. uh, as the, the, we'll explore in the rest of this episode, uh, also they freeze it. Uh, and oh, so yeah. they can save it for later. She says she has a whole like database free is full of, of brain soup. I'm sure all properly labeled and dated. Yes. So what they did is, yeah, they applied a fluorescent stain to differentiate the, the neurons uh, from other cells. And uh, she started with rats and other rodents, eventually working up to human brains. And eventually she had a verified count. Not 100 billion neurons, but 86 billion neurons. Though oh. apparently this can be higher, as high as, say, 91 billion, for instance. But 86 billion is the, you know, like the ballpark count. That's uh, – well, that, that doesn't seem too far off. I mean, that seems within a rough order of magnitude level of reasonableness. Well, it does and it doesn't. Like, uh, you know, it, she points out that this might not may not sound like much of a difference to a lot of us. And I have to admit, when I first heard it, it, it I didn't really register that it was that much different. Right. But, 100 billion versus 86. Yeah, yeah. It sounds like, all right, well, you, we almost got it, right? And uh, – the thing is, you know, she says that uh, 10 billion neurons is really is not a small sum when it comes to neural change and when we're talking about the evolution of, uh, of of brains. She says the difference there is an entire baboon brain and chain. <laughs> so, so yeah, that's a lot of neural power we're talking about there. And to be off uh, on that can, you know, can have consequences as we'll explore when we're talking about like what makes the human brain seemingly special. Yeah, that, that's interesting. I mean, and that's where it ties into her larger theory about what it is that's special about human brains. So obviously, neuroanatomists and other scientists have long debated this question, what makes human brains unique? Why, why are we the only ones with computers? You know, uh, why don't uh, rabbits have computers and all that? <laughs> uh, and so uh, wh- what is the physical property that gives the human brain its power? Is it size? I mean, that clearly doesn't make any sense because sperm whales have brains that are something like I think at least six or seven times larger than human brains and yet they don't seem to be smarter than us. Right. Likewise, uh, the elephant brain is much bigger. And, exactly. And we're not discounting the intelligence of whales and elephants no, here, no, but no. but, uh, but clearly their their neural power is not on the same scale as as human power and and we have to ask the question why right so we're able to do things that they're not able to do and is that difference related to sheer size of the brain clearly not uh, could it be an, another thing that's often put forward is the ratio of brain size to body size right uh, the the encephalization quotient that actually doesn't seem to quite cover it either right so one of the things you pointed out here is that uh, well just consider Consider a couple of these uh, neuron counts. Okay. Again, humans, 86 billion neurons. Uh, and then we have something like, like a rat, 200 million neurons. 
uh, an agouti, which is a South American, like rather plump kind of a critter, uh, but it is a rodent. Uh, 857 million neurons. Owl monkeys have uh, uh, 1,468 million neurons, while a capybara, again a rodent, 1,600 million neurons. Okay, so they're up into the billion range, but the difference here is still orders of magnitude of difference. Right, and and her argument is like when you compare like like like-sized rodents and primates, the primate brains, uh, you know, may be the same size, but there are more neurons in the more advanced primate brains. Right. So what seems to be going on here is that it's not so much that there's something really special about human brains, but there's something special about primate brains, prime, the brains of monkeys and apes, you know, the primate creatures like us, that they have these densely packed neuron-heavy cortex. Cortices. Yeah, that it comes down to concentration of neurons. And by the way, she also has found that birds have primate-like concentrations in the forebrain, which lines up with, the, with their intelligence despite much smaller brains than other intelligent animals. Yeah, we mentioned this before, but this really comes through in the, the sometimes startling intelligence of birds like corvids and parrots. Yeah, you look at a parrot, like how big is its brain, right? It's like yeah. you, know, you, you, you snack on nuts larger than this creature's brain, and yet it has this startling uh, intelligence about yeah, it. Yeah, the, the efficiently packed, the neuron-crammed forebrain, sort of like a primate. Yeah, yeah. Meanwhile, a whale brain, you could climb inside of it, and it's, uh, and, and it's, it's, it's not quite there. All right, on that note, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to explore more of Susanna Orcolano Ozell's ideas about uh, the human brain, how it has evolved, and why it has so many neurons. All right, we're back. So, more about brains. All right, so uh, one of the big takeaways from uh, Susanna Orcolano Ozell's work is that, of course, a big brain doesn't necessarily mean high levels of cognition. Again, it's more about neuron concentration. Yeah, this is what we were just talking about with the fact that obviously, you know, like whales, elephants, all these have much bigger brains than us, but there, there's a lot that our brains seem able to do that those brains can't. So it's not just size. There does seem to be something special about the way that primate brains are organized. And that's the thing, primate brains, not not just human brains. Yeah. Because that's something that uh, Urkelano Ozell really drives home is that the human brain is just a scaled-up primate brain. Yeah. There's nothing special about the human brain beyond that. Nothing God-touched or anything of the sort. She says that this is very much in line with what Darwin thought and was criticized for. Darwin thought the human brain was just another primate brain. But those who came after him, they often took their evolution with a hefty dose of human exceptionalism. Yeah, oh, wanting to think about us as a special case that the rules of life don't apply to like they apply to every other animal on Earth. Right. And likewise, um, Urkelino Ozell says that she faced resistance to her results due to the fact that they didn't support this view of human brain exceptionalism versus the brains of other primates. Uh, again, it's just a scaled up, uh, a scaled up primate brain. Right. So her idea, what she argues is... That what the human brain is, you, you start with a primate brain, mm-hmm. which primate brains, like brains of uh, monkeys and apes, in general, are more crammed with neurons than other types of brains in the animal kingdom, usually. And then you look at all the primates, and humans have by far the biggest primate brain. And then because it's the biggest version of this densely packed uh, primate neuron housing center, we are the, the smartest. That's essentially what makes us the smartest. And we'll get into why this seems to be the case and why um, uh, the, the, the argument that Susanna urkelin Hosel makes for it as well. Uh, but before we do that, I want to I touch base on another area that she lines up with all of this, and that is uh, the, the, the subject of longevity hmm. uh, in warm-blooded vertebrates anyway. Um, because it seems to be the case that neurons are more important than body size here as well. So in 2018 research that uh, was published in the Journal of Comparative Neurology, um, Rukalino Ozell and co-authors found that in primates, birds, and other warm-blooded creatures, the number of neurons that you have in the, cor- in the cortex of a species predicts about 75% of all the variation in the longevity across species. Body size and metabolism, the usual standard, because usually that's what we think of, right? An mm-hmm. elephant lives a, a while, it's big. Whales live a while, big, right? Uh, she says that this only predicts around 20 to 30%. Uh, of, uh, of, of the cases of longevity. Wow. 
And here's another slice of, of human non-exceptionalism. If you do the math, she says, this means that humans live about as long as you'd expect uh, based on their neuron load. And this particular brain soup study examined more than 700 warm-blooded animal species. I want to see a list of those soups, <laughs> soup flavors. <laughs> yes, the soup menu is, uh, is, is, is quite extensive at her lab. Now, why is there a connection between neurons and the cerebral cortex and longevity? Well, she says more work is required to figure this out, but she does have some ideas. And here's what she said in a press release on the paper from 2018. Quote, the data suggests that warm-blooded species accumulate damages at the same rate as they age. But what curtails life are damages to the cerebral cortex, not the rest of the body. The more cortical neurons you have, the longer you will still have enough to keep your body functional. The cortex is the part of your brain that is capable of making our behavior complex and flexible, yes, but that extends well beyond cognition and doing mental math and logic reasoning. The cerebral cortex also gives your body adaptability as it adjusts and learns how to react to stresses and predicts them. That includes keeping your physiological functions running smoothly and making sure your heart rate, your respiratory rate, and your metabolism are on track with what you're doing and how you feel uh, and with what you expect to happen next. And that apparently is a key factor that impacts longevity. Fascinating. Yeah. So I love how already just this, this concept of, of brain, not this concept of brain soup, but this tool of making brain soup, uh-huh. it already, you know, is turning certain things that uh, we used to think we knew about brains and the human brain and how it's different from other animals and, and indeed how, how other animals think, it, turning all of that on its head. And, yeah, and giving changing. us another way of thinking about it. Yeah. yeah. So one thing that this would obviously, I think, have somebody wondering about is, okay, if, if humans have, are, are the upper end of the primate brain, you know, with neuro, neuronal loads, you've got a lot of neurons in the human, human brain. How did we get that way? Right. Cause what it, happened? Because again, we can't go with any mythic interpretation here. We, there's no uh, ancient alien or God scenario where, where the, the, this particular primate was, was touched and made special. Mm-hmm. No, we, we need to look to something in the natural world, something that, that, uh, that, that explains this like, rapid growth of the brain. And uh, Erculano Uzel's hypothesis has to do with straightforward energy economy, the energy that different species are able to take into their bodies. Right. She says that she thinks it all comes down to the calories amassed uh, via a very early technological development that our ancestors made, that being cooking. Now, this is an interesting hypothesis. I like this. Yeah. We, now, we've discussed the essential role that cooking played in human advancement before, how it uh, externalized digestion allowed you to uh, sort of to you know heat up this pot or not even necessarily a pot, just mm-hmm. you know a pit with fire even, and partially digest uh, various organic matter before you give your own digestion uh, a, a digestive system a shot at it. Yeah, this makes it easier to digest uh, you know a, a lot of foods that would be impossible or difficult to consume otherwise, either because of their chemical components or maybe they're just tough, they're hard to chew or or you or they can't be chewed and cooking can make them softer and, of course, just speed up overall digestion. Yeah, it just gives your digestive system much more access to the nutrients inside through a variety of of means. Yeah, because – and this ties into neurons because neurons require energy. A lot of energy actually. Yeah, and the more neurons you have, the more energy you require to to charge them up. Like your brain consumes energy at a rate that is not proportional to its size relative to the rest of your body. It is the the great energy hog of your body. Yeah, we're talking uh, neurons require – six kilocalories per billion neurons per day. So um, um, Urquilano Ozell points out that the human brain costs on average 500 kilocalories per day. So in her words, not quite a whole hamburger. <laughs> but, but I mean, when you think about that in terms of food, the types of calories you can acquire in the wild yeah. without grains, without access to you know, easy meat and all that, that that's... That's a tough requirement. Yeah, let's take a moment to just um, r- realize how um, how the ha- how how amazing the hamburger is. <laughs> I mean, it, just in terms of like how much uh, you know protein and uh, potential nutrition is just jammed into that thing. There's a lot of energy in the hamburger, like it or not. Yeah, and we you know we take for granted you know what a robust chunk of energy that is. And if we had and if we had we didn't have the hamburger, and of course all the things that are comparable to the hamburger in mo- modern culinary tradition. 
if, if we didn't have that to, to eat, if we had to eat like our primate brethren did and still do without cooking in modern food, uh, she points out that we'd have to spend 9.5 hours every day eating. So instead of— So you're just eating like raw vegetable matter mostly. Yeah, all day. You'd, uh, like a lot of animals do in the world. You, if you, if you like, uh, like we do, watch a lot of documentaries, uh-huh. you'll frequently encounter uh, uh, you know, some, an animal or another, say a panda, and you're like, oh, all it does is eat because it has to. It has to eat all the time you know, uh-huh. to maintain uh, um, uh, this, this body and ultimately its brain as well. But, of course, our brain, again, has tremendous energy requirements. Uh, It only makes up 2% of our body, but it requires 25% of the body's energy. So that 500-calorie burger is just part of a 2,000-calorie-per-day diet. Yeah. So uh, Urkelana Ozel contends that without cooking, we'd be in the same state we'd evolved to 1.5 million years ago. We'd be small primates with essentially the brain power of a modern gorilla, but with some stone tool-making abilities. This is kind of encouraging as a, as a hypothesis for people who love cooking. You know, yeah. For kitchen uh, culinary enthusiasts, you, you, you may well be taking part in the most crucially human of all activities. Yeah, and I believe Michael Pollan has made a, a very, very similar argument before in terms of like why we, we, we love cooking and why even if we don't cook, we're drawn to the, you know, the myriad cooking shows that are out there. Mm-hmm. You know, we want to watch somebody cook. We want to learn about, uh, about different culinary traditions. And even uh, for my own part, I've never been much of a chef. Uh, I am not much of a chef uh, either, but I've been enjoying some of these various like meal box things recently, uh-huh. and it's teaching me some of like the basics of cooking. Oh, cool! And you know, I'll still curse at a tomato, but <laughs> there's something fulfilling about going through all the instructions and, and turning this you know sack of raw materials into a, a delicious meal. Well, uh, tomatoes are tricky devils. They can be. Yeah. <laughs> Seriously, I. They're they're at uh, both ends of my you know food love and hate spectrum. Basically, my favorite food in the entire world is a really good ripe summer tomato. Right, and my least favorite food in the entire world is like a mealy white winter tomato. It's the worst thing on earth. Yeah, it's there's it's kind of I feel a similar way with cantaloupe. Like there are a lot of mediocre cantaloupes out there and if you have one, you could easily turn your back on cantaloupes forever. Mm -hmm. But when you have like a really good cantaloupe, uh, there's nothing else that can beat it. Well, it's funny we talk about these extremes with agriculturally produced uh, fruits and vegetables. Urkulanu Uzel points out in somewhere I was uh, reading or one of her talks, I think, where she says, you know, it's kind of funny. The, the inherent logic of, of what she's showing here is even there in some of the, uh, the the diet trends where like what do people do when they want to lose weight? Well, one popular thing is the raw food diet because suddenly you're condemning yourself to a foraging type existence without, you know, without the calorie benefits of cooked food. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, uh, but, co- but cooking food is something we did develop again, and that was roughly 1.5 million years ago. Um, and this is the key technology, uh, she says, that changed uh, what was possible energy-wise for the evolving brain. Our brains got big in a hurry after this, and our food technology, of course, continued to evolve, most notably via the agricultural revolution. Oh, definitely. Yeah. I mean, the the history. Of, of of human civilization is the history of our uh, uh, manipulation of food, really, and our stockpiling of food, and then our trade of food, and our wars for food. So we are using research that makes use of the brain soup technique to discover the possibility to discover how important the invention of literal soup might have been. Yeah, I love the uh, the cyclical nature of this particular episode. We started with uh, with uh, brain soup, and we came back to brain soup. It's glorious. <laughs> okay, introducing a new sh- show segment: soup facts. Soup facts. Soup facts. Soup facts with Joe McCormick. <laughs> Here's something. If you're ever trying to figure out how much to season your soup, you know, you mm-hmm. don't want it to be too salty, of course, uh, but you also don't want to under season. How much salt should go in a soup? The best way to figure that out is to get the soup to the temperature that you plan to serve it at. 
Huh. And then taste and see how much salt it needs there because the amount of salt that we can taste when we taste something for seasoning varies drastically depending on what temperature the food is at. Oh. So you might uh, you might taste it and it tastes like it needs more salt or it, it already has enough salt at one temperature, but at a different temperature, it might taste totally different. Interesting. I hadn't thought about that. Yeah. I will use that the next time I'm, uh, I'm, I'm following instructions from a box on how to make soup. <laughs> All right. Another place I always mess up with salt is uh, with, with pasta. If I'm uh, mm-hmm. boiling pasta, like I, I keep putting in too little soup. Like I'm so afraid of oversalting something. Well, then I'm, I'm, and then my, my wife will come in and say, "Oh, no, you're supposed to be throwing like a whole fistful of salt <laughs> in there." Basically, it's a reasonable concern. I mean, y- you can, if you undersalt something, you can always add more. Mm-hmm. But if you oversalt, you can't take it out. Right. Or you know, I think back to the cocktail scenario. Like if yeah. I mix up, if I mess up a cocktail to the point where I can't fix it. Mm-hmm. Um, then I've wasted like two drinks, you know? Right. But if I do that with a soup or a stew, right. then I've ruined dinner. Like I have to then go and <laughs> get a pizza or something and I've wasted all of these resources. And, you know, the most heartbreaking thing you can do is have to potentially throw food away. And I have... I have got I have oversalted things in the past to that point, you know, where it's just basically inedible. There was some recipe where I had to and this was like a box meal years ago when uh-huh. I was first figuring it out. And I had like a thing of salt and a thing of sugar. And the sugar went into one component and Ooh, the salt into the other. And you mixed them. I flipped them. <laughs> which made like a pretty sweet coleslaw, but also just in, whatever the other thing was was Ugh. just inedible. Oh but, no. Yeah. That's a sad story. All right. So I guess we're going to leave it there. Uh, again, uh, Susanna uh, urcolino Zell, wonderful science communicator. Uh, look her up. She's all over the Internet. You can find her TED Talk readily, uh, easily. And uh, there are also various interviews with her. And then, of course, uh, the scientific papers are out there uh, to look at as well. Uh, so uh, also thanks to the World Science Festival um, uh, for letting me attend and, uh, and you know taking in all this data. Uh, look up the World Science Festival as well. Uh, they, uh, they have a wonderful YouTube YouTube page. They'll put a lot of these talks up, um, you know, uh, over the course of uh, the, the weeks and months ahead, mm-hmm. moving into next year. And in the meantime, if you want to check out more episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, head on over to StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That's the mothership. That's where you'll find them all. And if you want to support our show, uh, we commend you for, for wanting to do so. The best thing you can do is to just rate and review us wherever you have the power to do so. Wherever you get, wherever you get this podcast, leave some stars and a nice review. And, of course, just tell people about it, about us. Uh, tell your friends. Tell your family. And then tell them how to find this show. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Tari Harrison. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic or a guest for the future of the show, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Thank you.